Let us pray. Father God, we need your spirit in order to hear from this word this morning. So we pray that you pour it out on us so that through these words, we might have a better understanding of your love for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe it was Corey Temblum who used to tell a story about a little girl who had an antique cup. She was playing with an antique cup her mother loved, and she broke that cup. And she immediately knew that her mother would be disappointed, her mother would be angry with her, and yet she had the courage to pick up the pieces and bring them to her mother. And the mother could see the sorrow in her face, and she said, I forgive you. Throw the pieces into the trap. And then in the, the following day, this, this same child walked by the trash can and the truck and the pieces were still in the trash can. And she wanted to bring it up, uh, up again. She basically started to reach into the trash to bring out the broken pieces once more. And the mother said, don't you remember I forgave you? Leave those pieces in the trap. I've already forgiven you for that. Our passage begins with Joseph's brothers 20 years after their grave sin, and they have yet to deal with the broken pieces. They have yet to understand the principle of being prepared for the grace of God, of, of being prepared to come before God and repent of their sin. They, they are actually in this state of spiritual immaturity. Even Jacob, at the beginning of this passage, seems to remark about this, and they're just standing around. See, the covenant family of God, the first family of God, this unique family of God, is starving. In Canaan, the land that they are in, they are starving to death. And rumor has been going around Canaan, and, and so much to the extent or Jacob has learned that Egypt has food. They have food for this famine. They have food to weather this storm. And, and I find it, it's a little bit of speculation, but I find it hard to believe Jacob was the first one to hear about the food and famine in Egypt. I wonder why these brothers might have been sitting around as the family starved. It shows the lack of leadership within their family, basically the void that is present because of the fact that the young shepherd boy, Joseph, is no longer with them. To be able to bless the covenant family I would suspect that at least a few of them had also heard, as a caravan of people they'll be seen walking with soon, had at least heard that there was grain in Egypt. And yet, what else was in Egypt? What else was in Egypt was a reminder of the brokenness of their own sin. And so they, I, I, I wonder, I speculate, I admit, but I wonder if part of their beginning this passage 
uh, unmoving and unmoved in order to deal with the family starvation is in fact a part of being captivated uh, in a sinful way, in a mournful way about their sin and not understanding grace. And so Jacob states that classic parental line, why are you standing around doing nothing? And it's interesting because if you might remember at the beginning of this series, uh, we actually began when that same charge was given by Jacob's sons in the violation of Dinah, that Jacob did nothing in the face of this great and gross wickedness that befell the family. And here now, and actually that charge led Jacob to a series of introspection and actually a, re, a great reform for his household and the idolatry that they embraced. And now here the brothers have their moment where they are not seeking out the Lord. They are not acting. They are doing nothing as the covenant family starves to death. And so this leaderless pack of brothers they are told to go down to Egypt, something they should have taken the initiative to do in order to buy grain. And Egypt, of course, as was stated, was a reminder of that brother they stripped naked and first left for dead in the pit. And then Judah came up with the idea that maybe they could get a few pieces of silver for his body. So again, I will have to wonder if actually Maybe even going to Egypt, there was a potential fear of retribution by God. Actually, as the passage unfolds, it seems to be the case. And notice also, note Moses, in his narration of the story, isn't busy calling these ten brothers Jacob's sons, but he actually keeps referring to them as Joseph's brothers. I believe another textual clue pointing at the fact that the brothers knew know of the sin of Egypt in which they are guilty of, and they are delaying and dealing with it. And they would rather avoid it. They would rather starve to death, sit around and starve to death, than go down there to avoid the guilt of the memories of Joseph. And yet it's a time of famine. Physically, I dare say so, but also spiritually. And that needs to be dealt with. And so Egypt, ironically, is the only place they can go if they are to have life both physically and spiritually. And then in verse 4, we learn Jacob doesn't trust this leaderless ragtag of brothers with his one son, his only son, and whom he believes he loves at this moment. You think about Jacob, and there, there are even some textual clues when Jacob was first presented with the cloak covered in blood. But for 20 years, 10 brothers kept up the act that they had nothing to do with the death or the at least the disappearance of Joseph, what they presumed was a death in Jacob's eyes. It would be hard to believe that the ten of them could, for such a long period of time, avoid any kind of suspicion. And it seems from verse 4, Jacob does have suspicion against them, and he will not entrust his one son, his only son, to go with them. And so by verse 5, the 10 brothers are going down, and there's, it's clear in the text they're following a large caravan of people. Basically, a large group in Canaan is, is going to follow. And they come 
face to face with Joseph in verse 6, but they do not know it's him. And Joseph is the ruling authority of Egypt by this time. He is governor. So Joseph is a prime minister, but also the verse points out that Joseph is also an economic authority. So it's a little bit like he's the chairman of the Federal Reserve. He's both a, a prime minister and a, a chairman of the wealth. And appreciate what he's doing with this power. Think of the advantage that Egypt has. It has prepared for seven years for a famine it, know, it knew would come and would come for seven years. The famine's just started. This is early in the famine. You know, it has been a long-standing tradition of warfare and conquering to use starvation in order to capture lands. Egypt could have expanded its empire. It could have dominated the, the, the region, the world as it knew it. There's even uh, the famous story in World War II, the, the German invasion plan into Russia actually accounted for and planned to starve the Russian citizens in order to feed the German war machine. Over 3.3 million people in Russia starved to death during World War II because of those plans. Non-combatants, people who were not involved in the war. This is a, a common idea. And yet here Joseph, with all power and authority, is both blessing the nation of Egypt but he's not using their present power in order to conquer enemies, but he's actually welcoming the foreigner. He's welcoming the sojourner. It's a matter of good political and moral policy. He is a good man, a worthy political and moral aim. And in verse 6, we see Joseph stand in total control of the grain supply, and the brothers enter his presence with humility and bow down before him with their faces kissing the ground. And what was the first dream of Joseph again? It centered around the grain. The brothers were depicted as sheaves of grain, bowing down to Joseph. And in verse 7, as the brothers bow, Joseph recognizes the brothers before him. Just as Jacob recognized the blood-soaked cloak, of Joseph, and Judah recognized the elements that Tamar held that said he was the one of guilt. Now Joseph is face to face with his encounter of recognition. And it's interesting what develops. There's really two trains of thoughts that, that you have to take in what happens next. If you have kind of a Kantian ethic and there are commentators with this, I am guessing there are going to be people here today that will see Joseph's response in this moment as sinful. I don't take that view, but if you hold that view, I respect that view today. But Joseph is going to respond in this moment, and I believe it's actually going to be response rooted in wisdom and a response rooted in trying to ascertain the heart of his brothers and not motivated necessarily out of malice, 
but motivated as desiring more. We love to say Solomon is, was such a wise king, except for his marital relations and uh, some of his pagan temple building. But for a time period, Solomon was greatly wise. Uh, the author of our prophetic, a lot of our prophetic wisdom of scripture. And yet, what is the moment that we use to uphold Solomon as very wise? It's when he threatened to what? Cut a baby in half. That's, that doesn't sound that pleasant. That doesn't sound that nice. But we know that Solomon's motive in that moment was that he wasn't going to cut a baby in half, but his motive was to get to the heart of the matter, to use his wisdom in order to understand the heart of these two women that came before him that looked at this baby and both said, it's all my baby. And he used wisdom to discern where their heart was at and which one was the real mother. Think of where Joseph is at this moment. His brothers have just done the very thing that caused and just even the idea of it caused them to strip him naked and throw him in a pit, leaving him for dead. And then eventually they decided to relent a little bit and sell him for profit for silver into slavery in Egypt. They had just done the very thing that the last time Joseph had an encounter with them, they wanted to kill him over. They had been openly hostile and basically making war upon him. There is a sense of wisdom in how he responds in concealing his identity. An identity, if you remember, when he arose from that pit through the command of Pharaoh, his appearance was changed and he would have been veiled in front of them. He's been, as the passage makes clear, he's speaking even in Egyptian. And so I actually tend to think he's being wise, not sinful in his response to the brothers. And so Joseph has an advantage at this moment, and he's using that advantage to gain information. And so it's the motive behind the act rather than the act itself that we need to focus on. And so Joseph comes at his brothers with an accusation in order to acquire more information. He declares them spies, and he states this in an odd way. He words it, and it would have been odd to their ears. It would have been very a way you don't speak in this moment. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. Basically, you have come to incestuously violate the land. And it's this odd wording I want to, us to appreciate. See, there are, there's another time someone is rebuked with this kind of terminology in the book of Genesis. It happens earlier. It's with Noah, and Ham is declared to have violated the nakedness of Noah. And we know from Leviticus 21 that the nakedness of Noah was actually Noah's bride, Noah's wife, that Ham had basically violated the sacred trust of the family and violated a member of that family in such a way that it brought great shame and wickedness and evil to the family. And while the brothers 
blinded to who Joseph is would have been, what is he saying? I think there is a sense in which Joseph is saying, you have violated your father. You have violated the family in order to malice to a member of that family and gross wickedness. Remember, they stripped him naked and left him for dead and left him as a slave. And so I believe that there's possibly a hint of that here because the, the books of Moses really only use this kind of terminology in this kind of sense three times in Scripture, this being one of it, one of them, and then Ham, and then the definition of it in Leviticus. And so he's very harsh with the brothers. And, and he sees that they violated the legacy of even Rachel, his mother, and, and, and Jacob's favored bride. And it seems like if this is the interpretation, it seems to make sense that he is concerned very much so with Benjamin. While it is true that Joseph had a vision of 11 brothers bowing down before him, remember, he's been gone for 20 years. He doesn't know if his father's fathered another son. He doesn't know if his brother's even still alive. Maybe they got rid of the other son of Rachel too. Maybe they were jealous of him as well. And so while the language here is very harsh and out of place with the rest of the sentence, I think there's a reason for it. Joseph is working through the betrayal and trying to figure the heart of the matter of where these brothers are at. And so the brothers, not seeing, not understanding who stands before them, but were just dumbfounded at why this governor is so hostile with them. Um, who's, and, and in response to this hostilities, the brothers tell a lie. They don't tell a lie. In verse 10, they say they came for food, but in verse 11, they lie to Joseph, telling him that they are honest men. And Joseph, who is concealing his identity at this moment, in order to see if his brothers have a change of heart, would have found reason to continue to treat them with great suspicion over this matter, of his brothers declaring their honesty before them and uprightness in his presence. It would have been an insult. He knows their gravest sin. He knows the guilt they carry down to Egypt. These brothers are not being honest and forthright, for they still have a sin they've avoided dealing with down in Egypt. And so Joseph now for a second time uses that odd language of the brothers incestually sleep violating the land and then ironically in an attempt to pr prove their honesty before this bombastic governor the brothers in verse 13 use their family history to vouch for their good conduct you couldn't pick a worse thing to say at a worse time to this veiled son of israel oh we were uh, this family of 12 brothers but one brother's dead, yet another falsehood from their lips. They've told Joseph now, he is not dead. And so in the mixture of truth and lies, Joseph, at the start of verse 14, begins to establish a plan in order to get to the heart of the matter, to sort out truth from fiction in regards to his brothers. Joseph has come up with a test, and that word test has a parallel 
with Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham was tested, first told to go out to the region, and then three days later, in this region, the Lord led Abraham, was told to take his son, his, his only son, in whom he loved, up a mountain in order to offer him to the Lord. Here is another moment of a great test in Genesis. And ironically, if you think about this, the test that's created will require for Jacob a much similar sacrifice to take his one son, his only son in whom he loves at this moment, and to allow him to go with these brothers that he likely suspects did his first son harm down into Egypt. And yet, and also these brothers would then have to carry a favored brother to Egypt. The parallels are incredible, and the tests that Joseph sets before them are remarkable and has, have threads with other tests of Scripture of this kind. And yet, Joseph knows this plan will work because he knows there are plenty of years left in the famine to come, and Egypt holds all the cards because it holds all the food, and for the household not to starve, eventually. The son must come. And so Joseph states at first, I'll imprison all ten of you at first and then send one of you to go fetch your brother. And yet after three days in the pit, a period of time parallel to Genesis chapter 22, verse 4, when Isaac learned of God's full plan three days later, in his test with Isaac, a new plan emerges from the favored son of Israel. And the plan is this. Joseph makes clear he offers this plan, first off, because he's a God-fearing man, a man who actually fears the God of Israel. And the new plan is this. Joseph does not want his brother's household to starve to death. He actually wants them to carry as much grain as they possibly could to go back to Canaan so that the covenant family of God could be spared. Realize every day there's a delay. There is a threat of starvation for those whom he loves. And so he decides to only keep one brother, sending all the others. And because he cares about the covenant family of God. So Joseph's plan wanted to protect the covenant household above all costs. How did we begin the passage? With the ten other brothers not concerned with protecting the covenant household of God at all costs. He is the leader of the brothers. He is the brother in whom is the true shepherd boy of God. And these dim-witted brothers, they can't still see who this is in their midst. They're absolutely blind to the love that they're being shown in this moment, the graciousness of this moment. They're not prepared to receive it. They see this generous plan of Joseph to save their household, to save their family as a curse, as a punishment by God. And so they look at this situation, and they see the very worst of God. Instead of seeing the divine generosity of God that is unfolding before their very eyes, all these brothers might be blind to Joseph. What they are even more blind to is the fact that God is trying to love them and they misconstrued God's love and planned for their lives as hate 
of how this fits the modern world to a T. We worship a God who tells us we used to have scales from our eyes. We need a new birth because we, we are dead in our trespasses. That the fullness of life is found in him and his words alone. We, we, state, we worship a God who states in his word, humble yourself before me. Come to me in poverty of the spirit and I will bless you. I will renew you. I will restore you. And in our pride, oh, in our pride, I say it one more time, seeing it's June, in our pride, we say, you have nothing good for me, Lord. And what you say is right, what you say is good, what you say is moral, I call evil. And I only call what you say is evil and wicked, I will declare it good in my pride. And we get the wrong idea of God in our sin. And we miss the generous grace he offers to the patterns of our lives. The blindness of these brothers in this moment is a warning to us that we need to be very careful when re to not redefine God's merciful blessings and leadings and rearrange those blessings in such a way that we call God and his design evil. And yet the reason the brothers do this, as continues to be shown in this passage, is that they are fools who don't know what to do with their guilt and don't see the grace that is before them. And so they confess to one another the guilt of what they did more than 20 years earlier. They know the weight of sin and they know that the weight is too great to bear. And in their confession, they believe this moment of grace is after actually a moment of great reckoning. They heard the favored son of Israel's cry, they proclaimed, the cries of the one who had been stripped naked, thrown into the pit, who they received pieces of silver for the life of, and they did not care, and they believe that God is now cursing them for that sin. And yet God uses that worse, that terrible action, in order to bless them. Guilt is such a powerful emotion. I think a much of what's gone wrong in the world is the fact that in our own day and age, we have so few people who know what to do with their guilt. As someone who appreciates history, it's really scary to continue to see the trend continue in our present day of projecting our guilt onto other groups and onto others and blame, blame shifting rather than dealing honestly with guilt and sin. It's a most dangerous idea indeed. We are a people often unprepared for grace, both within the church and outside of the church. Outside of the church, of course, it's easy to identify how the world's decided to handle guilt in our present day. The remedy has become called nothing in the public square sin. Let us not forget, Christians, as we see the public square continue to devolve in what would have been unthinkable in previous eras, that same public square is still undergoing a great famine, and some will come. They will eventually come before the Son of Israel, the favored one, oh, our Lord Jesus Christ, who offers gracious mercy in life's fantasy.
famines for the repentant one. And so we need to be ready to receive them. And we need to be ready for grace and ready to see grace poured out. Because our God is a redeeming God, a saving God in a time of great famine. And so in the aftermath, the brother's confession, of the brother's confession, they are under, unaware of Joseph understanding them in this moment. And he even hears the revelation that the eldest brother, Reuben, in verse 22, he actually tried to stop the other nine from their wicked act. And so Joseph, unbeknownst to his brothers, finally hears an honest word from them, and he leaves and he weeps. He's so un- overcome with emotion by the acknowledgement of their sin. Well, a year earlier, if you remember from last week, he had named his son Manasseh, implying that through that first son, he began to forget the sins of his household. He is having at this moment a far greater weight lifted than Manasseh could ever offer. And upon his return, Joseph skips over holding his eldest brother. I have to think that he likely does so because of Reuben's confession, the fact that Reuben wanted to spare Joseph from the pit. And instead, he selects the second of the household, Simeon, to remain, to be detained. And then Joseph, in private, gives his men orders to both provide the brothers with an abundance of grain, but also return the money to them. And now, for a second time, the brothers head back to Canaan, with a brother left to Egypt, this time Simeon. And as the scene closes, a single brother, in feeding his donkey, opened a sack of grain and saw that the fact that the money that he had brought had been restored to him. And because the brothers were still blinded to see how God works in his grace, they decide yet again, God's doing something awful against them. They miss the beautiful redemption story that is starting to take root, starting to bear fruit in their midst, that this one who could have put them to death rather blesses them beyond measure. They are returning to Canaan with silver they should not have, and yet this silver was not given in sin like the silver they acquired for Joseph 20 years earlier. This silver was given out of grace. And yet, for them, because they do not know grace, it compounds their guilt. And the rest of the walk becomes a walk of guilt, a walk of shame. And the brothers still do not know what to do like the child knew at the beginning of our sermon. What to do with the broken pieces, where to take them to, what to do with their guilt. And you just want to say to them, You fools, it was done out of grace. It was done out of grace. See the grace that you've been given. Receive it with thanksgiving. You're receiving the right hand of mercy. Don't make what God has given you and God calls good out to be evil. And yet how many people do we pass by who believe God's retribution is upon them and have long ago given up on considering the God of Scripture on his own terms. They don't even know how the hope of grace is possible. And we don't even correct them in our day-to-day lives. While Joseph, a worthy leader 
of the brothers knows the pattern of grace. Do we? Do we? One of the remarkable things we don't like to consider in the Old Testament is the sacrificial system. How God would take this animal, the sacrificial animal, and he would use everything from it, all of it, the best parts, the worst parts, and he would use it all in the sacrifice. He would use it all in the offering, the gross things, the innards, the things that you don't want mixed in with me. The story of Joseph is a reminder that God uses everything for his glory. He uses the innards of our life, the broken pieces. And he offers a full-fledged forgiveness, a full-fledged grace, a full-fledged mercy. If only we have eyes to see it. Don't misunderstand God and his grace. Don't misunderstand God and his mercy. The consequences are severe for such misunderstanding. Our God is a saving God. Our God is a redeeming God. Our God is a God who takes the innards of life and, and still can make them a part of his offer. Remember them, Christian. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, help us to always be mindful of what we are to do with our guilt, what we are to do with the broken pieces of our sin. Help us in areas where we are, we too are blind, where we have not yet bended bend the knee and acknowledged your forgiving grace. Let us remember that our full assurance is found in having a full faith in that you are the saving God. And then let us boldly share that with others out of love, out of mercy, and out of care for both those local and even the foreigner and even the enemy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.